Thanks for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the podcast from Dream QMC Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing general introduction to psychiatry. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. All guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello, welcome back to Take Orally. Uh, Jamie Thomas here, teaching fellow in emergency medicine. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. James Ellison to Take Orally. Welcome, James. Hello. And you work in psychiatry, is that not right? I do indeed. What's your special interest? Um, well, I'm, I'm trained as a general adult psychiatrist, but I have an endorsement in uh, substance misuse psychiatry, and um, that's the area that I currently work in. So I'm the local consultant with the Nottinghamshire dual diagnosis service, so it's a team that works with people with mental illness and comorbid substance misuse, okay. and I deal with the substance misuse side of things. Okay, so in this podcast we're going to just have a bit of a, a general introduction to some of the uh, concepts and diagnoses that there are in um, psychiatry, this is obviously a very great subject and we could do a whole series of podcasts on each topic, mm-hmm. so we're going to try and keep this as sort of brief and uh, general as possible. So mental health issues, something we see very commonly in the emotional department. I don't think, in every shift, I think I'll see at least one patient who's got some aspects of mental health that's being at least a part of the reason to come to the emergency department. In your training, you must have had a lot of reason to come down to, to various A&Es. Yeah, so throughout my training, I, I was in, in and out of, of A&E, mainly on call, um, to assess patients who were acutely unwell, who were suicidal, basically any sort of distress that, that they were um, uh, expressing often um, got referred to uh, the liaison psychiatry service and, and as a junior doctor in psychiatry you cover um, that, that service and out of hours so I, I've assessed countless patients in a mm-hmm. both as part of a, a, their emergency assessment and also as part of mental health assessment, which I think we'll be talking about later. Yeah. So this original podcast is uh, sort of aimed at, so here at the University of Nottingham, um, psychiatry is part of the fourth year, um, clinical phase two, CP2, uh, but also for anybody who's starting in emergency medicine who wants a little bit of an introduction into what it is like uh, to, to look after a patient with mental health issues. Uh, so we'll just start with a few definitions, I suppose. Um, first one being depression. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a very big difference in depression as an illness and what we hear we may say to our friends I'm feeling depressed today yeah yeah so depression is something that that we'll all be familiar with and, and have an understanding of either through personal experience experiences of, of friends and family or, or just from our understanding of, of everyday sadness um, depression is is what used to be termed a, a, a neurosis um, and the defining feature of neurosis is that they are um, conditions that feature problems that we all experience, but which are exaggerated to a degree that they impair functioning. So everyone experiences sadness at some point in their lives, but when that sadness becomes so extreme and out of, um, out of kilter with the context of your life, then it represents a, a, a a diagnosable and, and, uh, and, and a harmful condition. So, um, so yeah, depression it is sadness is at the core of it, um, and and that's a low mood as as we would term it in psychiatry. But there are a lot of other uh, things that come in with depression to make it in, into an actual condition that's distinct from just feeling sad. 
So what other things might the patient be um, you know, uh, complaining of or what would you want you know, a, a junior doctor or a medical student to ask in their history if they were considering a patient with depressive illness? Well, I think the, 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 the main thing really uh, is when you're approaching any, any patient with a mental illness really is just to be curious and to, to find out as much as possible about that patient's experience of, of what they're going through um, in, their own, in their own words. Um, there's not any question that you're going to ask that's going to make things worse um, within reason. And, um, but, but in terms of depression, uh, I guess obviously you want to know what, what that patient's description of their mood is like, what, what, how do they feel, and you want that in their own words, and, and really it, it's good to describe that. Um, often that will ex include expletives, but, but it's helpful to know what that patient describes their mood as. Mm. Um, but then there's also the, the pattern of the mood. So if someone is um, uh, feeling very sad, but then a, 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 an hour later they're feeling very happy, that would can you know work work against a diagnosis of depression. Likewise, if someone um, is feeling sad for a day and then they perk up the next day, that, that that's not consistent. So we're looking at the pattern throughout a day, but also the pattern over a number of days and weeks. If we're looking at the ICD-10 diagnosis cr uh, criteria, um, then you, you need to have um, a period of low mood for at least two weeks. Um, so. Um, we're looking at how long the low mood's been there for, what the pattern is like throughout the day. Generally, people with depression will feel worse in the morning and it will get better throughout the day. So that's called diurnal variation. Um, uh, and then there's, aside from the, the actual mood itself, there's other symptoms that can, can come, come along with depression. So I, I guess really important is sleep. Mm. Um, sleep is disturbed in most mental illnesses. Um, it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing, which disturbance came first. But in depression, the typical sleep disturbance is that uh, people will be uh, waking up really early. So, so it's, as it says on the tin, it's called early morning awakening. Um, and we're looking at someone waking up at least two hours before they normally would wake up naturally and not being able to get back to sleep. Mm. Um, and that's actually, it sounds trivial, but it's actually really distressing, especially if, um, if you're awake and no one else is awake, there's no one to talk to, you're alone with your thoughts, you're stewing on things. So, so that, that's, uh, that's something that we want to know about, is what their sleep patterns are like. Um, and I, I guess that leads on to another feature of, of the way that people think when they're depressed, is that often um, they will ruminate um, and stew on, on negative thoughts. Um, it's very hard to see the wood for the trees when you're depressed and you often uh, will only see the negative things and, and you'll think about those and those will snowball out of control. Um, so negative ruminations and, and negative thoughts are, are something that you need to ask about, what, what they tend to think about. Um, I guess also people with depression are often hopeless, um, they don't think there's any way that they're going to get better or they feel helpless, they don't think anyone can help them. And, and just asking, do you feel hope, hopeless, do you feel helpless, those are really helpful questions to, to ask um, in, in your assessment. Um, other things, just 
a lot of patients will tell you these things without without having to ask them directly. But we're looking for things like low self-esteem, um, tearfulness, feeling guilty. Um, often people will feel guilty about um, about things, not and, and they haven't necessarily done anything, but they'll just feel a general sense of guilt and, and trepidation. People can be intolerant or or irritable, and. Um, and also, it's really important to ask about what people's days are like, uh, what they do with their time. Mm. And, and often people won't have the motivation or the interest in, in, in doing things. Um, patients with depression uh, often suffer, or usually suffer, what we call anhedonia, so an inability to enjoy things. Um, and often you'll find people, it, it, it's useful to say, what did you used to enjoy? And they'll tell you about the sports or the or the hobbies or, or the things they used to enjoy doing, and and if they don't enjoy doing those things, if they don't get any joy out of those things, that's a that's an important sign to be aware of. Um, obviously, although although we talk about depression as a, as a, as an illness that's mainly about mood, anxiety often comes as part of depression as well. So they're often intertwined, and people will be very anxious, and and I think the one that people most often worry about is, is suicidal thoughts and thoughts about self-harm mm. um, and that's always something to, to be aware of and to ask about and also be aware that asking about it doesn't increase the risk of someone harming themselves it's really important that mm. you are not going to be the first person to have introduced a concept of suicide to someone they're not you're not going to plant that in their mind so um, you know you need to ask that um, ask it in a sensitive way but you know you do need to ask it. I, I often find it's it's useful to normalise um, those thoughts. So to say, well, when people are feeling very sad and very down, sometimes they think about hurting themselves. Have you ever had thoughts like that? So you're sort mm. you, you're sort of saying, look, I've seen other people they're in this position and they yeah. think like this. Do you feel like that? It, it it's it's an easier way into asking it rather than just blurting out, do you have any thoughts about hurting yourself? Yeah. And um, should we be prepared ourselves as, as the clinician, as a student, talking to somebody depressed to, that they may, may provoke feelings in ourselves? Should there be things that we should be aware of as we go and talk to them? Yeah, well, I think it's important to realise that all our patients provoke feelings in ourselves. Um, and and it, it's something that perhaps isn't thought about enough outside of psychiatry. But, you know, we all have um, feelings that... That, that are brought up in, in us by our patients, either positive or negative. Um, and, you, you know, it's important to be aware of those and listen to those emotions. Um, not necessarily so that you act on them, mm. uh, uh, often so that you don't act on them. So you may have a patient who you find quite um, frustrating or who makes you feel very sad. Um, and it's important that you understand that that is, you know, that, that's separate to how you treat the patient. You don't let those emotions affect how you, how you treat the patient. It may be distressing to to you to speak to someone who's depressed, especially if they've been through a lot of trauma and, and things like that. Um, and, uh, and and perhaps that might touch on sensitive things from your life. Um, and I'm not at all saying that you shouldn't uh, be aware of that, uh, but. You know, you should make sure that that doesn't come into the consultation. Mm. That you don't reveal things about yourself. Mm. That we don't self-disclose uh, to a great de degree with our patients. Um, but also that you, you know, 
you address those things, but but afterwards, in in a in a safe space, perhaps you'll talk to a colleague um, or a trusted friend or family member um, to to sort of de-stress and unwind. Obviously, without divulging patient details, mm. but it's a, it's really important and, and this is something that we do as psychiatrists we, we will um, throughout our training have a, a, an hour of protected time with our supervisor every week where we can talk about these things and, and that to a lot of people seems a bit uh, frivolous and uh, you know a bit of a luxury but actually it's really important because dealing with other people's distress all the time can be quite distressing for you um, and so it, it's good to have a pressure valve to let that off uh, mm. to some extent. Mm. And I mean, I suppose it, it, it sounds a bit um, a bit whimsical just to say, "Oh, be nice, be sympathetic." Any other sort of tips in in what you know when we're talking to somebody who is depressed and, and about how you know any other tips in how we can come across as a communicator and as a clinician? Well, I, I think that. It, it is just about your core communication skills and, and being a, a, an empathetic, um, kind human being, really. Mm. Um, now, it's, it, it's important that you don't um, go too far into mirroring their, their behaviours and becoming very quiet and, and closed off yourself, but equally you don't want to be rash and, and, and in your face with, with the patient. So, it's just about judging the, the situation and, and and communicating with the patient on a way that, that's going to be sensitive to, to their emotional state. Um, as I said, there's not really going to be anything that you're going to, unless you're very um, insensitive with the way that you ask questions, there's not really going to be anything that you uh, can make worse. Yeah. Um, there are certain topics that are difficult for anyone to discuss, so that would be things... Um, uh, and this may not be as, as applicable to someone taking a history in an emergency department setting because really you're looking at the here and now and what the symptoms are. But as a psychiatrist, we were looking at people's pasts, often there's traumatic um, incidents such as childhood abuse, and those can be really upsetting things to talk about. Um, so if you do talk about that, or if the patient talks about those things, I, I often think it, it, it's best to, to use Ways, ways into that uh, conversation to couch it in, in, in a way that normalises it and doesn't um, come across as, as um, accusatory to the patient. So it might be, um, I need to ask these questions, it's quite difficult for some people to talk about, but it's important that I'm aware of, of what's mm. happened in childhood. Have you experienced anything that you yeah. consider to be abused? So it's not going in and just asking the abuse question. But you do that in all sorts, so you know, um, young lady comes in with abdominal pain mm. any ch I have to ask any exactly. chance you might be pregnant I mean exactly. we, we do that in it exactly but I think that often because it's outside of yeah. your comfort zone people mm. will go into questions in a clumsy way mm. um, I think the other thing is it, it, it's not a bad thing to, to take a step away yeah and, and you know to just say I just need to go and check some notes or I just need to go and sort something out if you need to gather your thoughts and mm. or, or you're getting distressed or you just need a breather there's nothing wrong with taking it as long as the patient's safe there's nothing wrong with taking a step away because it, it does take quite a, a lot longer to do a psychiatric history than it does to do a simple history for shots of breath or something like that yeah so um, there's nothing wrong with, with taking a step away if you need that rather than carrying on down a, down a, 
a difficult um, path when you're not prepared for it. So you, you know, there's nothing wrong with taking time. Mm. And maybe then if the patient becomes that they're not very forthcoming or something, you say, we maybe need to take some time out here. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of my experience in A&E, if, if another uh, common psychiatric presentation um, will be patients who are either known to have or are query psychosis. Mm -hmm. So these could be the patient who is coming in uh, confused, talking to themselves, has done, you know, has, has been acting strangely with the family. Mm -hmm. um, we've ruled out organic causes if they're not known to have a psychiatric condition or they have come in previously with a psychiatric condition. Mm -hmm. um, so what is psychosis? What, what, what sort of things are we, are we thinking about when we talk about psychosis? So psychosis is, a, a, again, a broad umbrella uh, term for a group of illnesses. Uh, or conditions, um, essentially the opposite side of the coin to neurosis. So where, whereas in neurosis people have experienced those emotions in their everyday life, low mood, anxiety, um, those kind of things, uh, and, or, or, or happiness, which is you know expanded in mania. In psychosis, the symptoms that people experience are unusual. They're things that most people wouldn't experience in their everyday lives. So those are things like hallucinations, which are um, the experience of the stimulus without without a physical stimulus there to um, to do that. So so perception without a physical stimulus, um, and those could be in any of the sensory modalities, but most commonly auditory. It's very unusual to see um, a patient with visual hallucinations without an organic cause. There. So visual hallucinations make you think organic, um, but so, so yes, yeah, so patients will experience um, or may experience hallucinations, which is uh, the, these these perceptual abnormalities that uh, without the stimulus. And I'm right in thinking the auditory hallucination isn't their own voice; it's somebody else's. It could be, or it could it could be it could be someone else's. Um, I think that the thing about a hallucination is it has all the characteristics of a real perception. Yeah. Apart from the stimulus, sure. So um, it will come in through your ears if it's a, an auditory hallucination. Um, and there are lots of weird and wonderful. It's not a voice in your head. It's not thoughts. Yeah, and, and the patient will, especially a first-time presentation of, of psychosis, they won't describe it as a voice in their head. It is a voice, mm -hmm. and often they will go looking for the voice. They will say, "Oh, it's my neighbour. I can hear the neighbour talking through the walls." Um, it, it, it feels like it's outside of your body. There are lots of weird and wonderful um, types of hallucination that um, that we see very rarely. Um, extra campine hallucinations are hallucinations outside of the normal realm of human ability. So I might think I can hear someone talking to me on the moon. Okay. That that's a, that's they're quite rare, but mm. there are things that 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 you know. And as you say, you're talking about it could be their voice, it could be someone else's, it could be a known voice, it could be an unknown voice. That voice could be coming from part of their body, it could be coming from an object, it could be coming from um, something that they identify, so mm. they, they could be saying the devil is talking to me, or they could have no idea what the voice is, but it's just very distressing. Um, if you can imagine that yourself, you're hearing noises or voices that you can't explain in at first, especially, it's extremely distressing, mm. no matter what the content is. Um, 
uh, patients often do become used to them um, and, and, and find ways of dealing with them if they have a long-term psychotic illness. But, um, but it is a really interesting thing to experience. Um, and, and the thing that I was saying about it having all the features of a real perception is that the patient believes it's real. Um, and and that, that's so a, insight is an issue. Yeah, yeah that they, they completely convinced it that it is real. Um, now you will hear, you will meet people who have voices in their heads, and, and, the, and but they know that the voice is inside their head, um, or they have what seems like hallucination. But there is one of the features that of, of a real perception that isn't fulfilled, and that's what we call a pseudo hallucination. Mm. Um, and often. Pseudo hallucinations are seen in people with personality disorder, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. But um, but in terms of, of um, hallucinations, that's a really important thing to ask about, and it can be really difficult to ask about because if the person thinks it's real, and you say, "Have you heard any voices that aren't there?" Then they will answer no, because some of the voices definitely are there, aren't they? Mm. So there's ways to ask about that. Yeah. Um, we often say things like, um, have you heard any um, anyone speaking or any noises and voices when other people aren't around? Yeah. So that that sort of, you know, then they will say, well, yes, I heard this voice and I couldn't find anyone that was saying it, but, you know. So that's important to, to know about. Also, the con- if it is an auditory hallucination, the content's really important. So it might be um, positive content, um, it might be negative content, it might be, um, about the person themselves, or it might be um, about other people around them. Sometimes you, you, people will experience, you know, negative comments about those around them. Um, it, it's helpful to know if there are commands in there. So if the voice is telling people to do things, that does, you know, happen at times. And, and sometimes those those commands are quite difficult to to um, resist. So it's important to ask about whether the voices tell people to do things. Mm. Um, but I think just getting a, again, it's about being curious and, and getting, just getting a flavor of what that person's experience is of, mm. of that symptom. Um, so um, other symptoms that people will experience, see the main um, group of symptoms in psychosis are, are delusions. And those are, are fixed, unshakable, abnormal beliefs. Uh, that aren't in content, uh, aren't consistent with the patient's religious or cultural background. So it, it's about, um, and again, how do you ask about that? Because you can't say, do you have any abnormal beliefs? Because yeah. the patient <laughs> will think no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're completely unshakable. Yeah. Any evidence that you give to the contrary, they will they will argue against. And <clears throat> I think the other thing to to be aware of is just because it's improbable. It's not impossible. So I've met patients who have told me quite outlandish stories about, um, you know, having dinner with pop stars, um, but it's turned out that that has been true. So don't assume that that something isn't true because it sounds strange. Um, but the, the delusions that, that that people have, there's a variety of different kinds of delusions. I guess the most problematic are, are persecutory yeah. delusions. Um, people are out to get me, there's a conspiracy against me, people want to kill me, those kind of things. Um, so the way that you kind of ask about those is, if, if you're just with the patient on their own, you can say, are there any things that 
other people have said are quite strange. Mm. Um, or if there's someone that you can speak to, a collateral history, that's really important, uh, really helpful, because you can ask family, friends, is there anything odd that, that the patient has said? Um, the thing is, though, a, a lot of patients will be very, um, very forthcoming with their delusions, and they'll tell you all about the things that they believe. And it's important that you explore them and don't just take them at face value. Um, and uh, but don't collude as well. So, so if someone told me that they thought that uh, there was a conspiracy against them, and MI5 were going to um, to assassinate them, I don't want to find out why the patient thought that. I want to gently challenge it to, to check whether that was an unshakable belief. So I said, well, it seems a bit strange that MI5 would be out to get you. Why would why would they be interested in you? Because it doesn't seem that you know that you're a significant political figure or something like that. And, and just, just gently pushing to see whether, whether the, the thoughts and the delusion um, unravels or whether it changes. Um, and and, and the patients will often have an answer you know, for those things because they have a system, often these delusions are part of a system. Because I know it's, the secret yeah, that I don't want. It, yeah, yeah, it's it, all yeah. Makes, it all makes sense yeah. in, in the, the world. So a patient I saw recently um, was telling me that that they um, uh, the queen wants to kill him uh, for his organs because he's uh, he's secretly uh, no one else knows this but he is uh, related to the queen and then um, then drawn into this were conspiracies with the IRA and so it, it's it's a real system that this patient completely believes. Um, and you see, you can see delusions and hallucinations together, and, and often there'll be a delusional explanation for the, for the hallucination. So the voices um, are something that someone experiences, and then they, there is a delusional explanation attached. Mm. So the voices are the voices of aliens or those yeah. kind of things, and then that may be systematised. They they believe further abnormal things around that delusion. So again, it's just about being curious and asking. Um, asking questions to, to kind of explore and get an idea of what that person's experience of, of, of that is. So what are you hearing? When do you hear it? How, yeah. does it, how do you feel when you hear that? Yeah. Yeah. And, and going on from there and, yeah. and a collateral if possible. Yeah, collateral is, is, is always really important. I think one thing as well to be aware of with, with all mental illness um, uh, and learning stability um, is that there's a concept called diagnostic overshadowing and it's really important to be aware of this because if someone has a history of psychosis and they come in and they're complaining of abdominal pain um, obviously in an emergency situation it's really important that you need to rule out organic causes for um, for that abdominal pain or for, for the symptoms that they're experiencing but sometimes what we see happen is that this diagnostic overshadowing uh, kicks in and a patient comes in and they complain of a certain symptom and if they have a mental illness or a learning disability it's, it's assumed that that is the reason that they're presenting in the way that they are. Mm. Uh, so it's really important to actually remember that and to treat any patient that you see the same, uh, you know, 
the same regardless of whether they have a mental illness or not. Mm. Um, and that can be really difficult and really frustrating for staff and, and, and it can be a strain on service. So if you've got a patient with anxiety who keeps coming in thinking that they've, um, they've had a heart attack, but actually they've had a panic attack, well, obviously you need to rule out something organic and you need to, it's, a, it's a fine line to tread because you need to do it in a way that doesn't add to their health anxiety and, uh, you know, yeah. and kind of reward that behaviour. But equally, you need to rule something out and, and not just assume, oh, well, this patient this patient's anxious, they have panic attacks, the chest pain must be a panic attack. Absolutely. And therefore, yeah. Because, you know what, one of these days you're going to miss something. Yeah. So it's really important to, to think about mental, mental health yeah. and physical health I think, I think that's some, and it's something I talk to my students about a, a lot, the, the psych-out effect, the fact that people are labelled, see this patient, make sure, say, you know, rubber stamp them as medically mm. fit, and then we can get them into seeing psychiatry or something, you know, mm. and you, the nurses can actually say that to you, come in, Jamie, you know, see this patient, they have depression, I think it's a panic attack, mm. and then send them on their way. Uh, and you've already gone in, you're prejudiced, you're, yeah. you're loaded. Yeah. And even if, you know, I think I'm not prejudiced, I'm a yeah. nice human being, but you can't help it. Yeah. And a great example of a patient who, their opening line was, I'm having a panic attack, I'm wasting your time, I have anxiety, this mm -hmm. is a panic attack. Um, and they were very short of breath, but they were also needing a lot of oxygen, and you mm -hmm. don't need that with a panic attack. Uh, and um, in the end I had to actually say can we please stop calling it a panic attack can we please start saying shortness of breath mm. to take myself out of that and that mm. patient had several PEs yeah. um, that could have been very easily mm. missed yeah. uh, I'm not saying that as a pat on my back but as a, as a very useful learning exercise no, definitely. Uh, I remember seeing a patient as a registrar who had come into A&E uh, brought in by concerned relatives uh, with um, a, a short period of amnesia and was very quickly um, referred to psychiatry with no investigations. It was a few and, or something. Yeah, yeah uh, because this patient had a history and you know the patient had a personality disorder and had been seen many times before and never presented like this. Mm. But it was assumed it must be because of the personality disorder get psychiatry to see him. And you know what? They were right. It was to do with her personality disorder. She was going through something stressful yeah. and in her life and, and had decompensated and, and that is how she presented. But if my mum had come in with a three-day history of amnesia, I'm pretty sure she'd have got a scan. Scan and CT head. So, yeah. uh, and, and the problem is, 95% of the time you'll be right, but it's that 5% that you've got to be aware of. So I think, you know, and, and it, it, is, it isn't a, a black and white thing. It isn't that some people have mental health problems, some people have physical health problems. They're always overlapping. And, mm. and even patients who you see with what seems like a completely physical um, health condition, there's going to be emotional and psychological Absolutely. symptoms yeah. and, and effects there. So, so I think it, it is really useful to try and think about everything. Um, uh, you know, think, just think about and treat patients holistically. Absolutely. Um, so you, we sort of touched a little bit on um, personality disorder there as well. Um, so I think leads on to a, the obvious next question. You know, very broad term. What is a personality disorder? Uh, I think these are these are patients we, we I do see uh, as well in most department. Very often having performed 
deliberate self-harm, mm-hmm. borderline personality disorder as a label, something like that. What do we talk about? We talk about personality disorder. We don't call it deliberate self-harm. Okay. A portion's blame. <laughs> so it's self-harm. self-harm. Um, yeah, personality disorder is um, it's a really broad concept, as you said, and it, it's a really tricky concept to get your head around. Um, and because it implies there's something wrong with your personality. Yeah, it, yeah, it does, and and it's it can be quite a pejorative term yeah. in, in in just that you know everyone has a personality, and if you're saying that my personality disorder, that means there's something inher- inherently wrong with me as a human being. So it, it's quite pejorative. But also in in the healthcare service or healthcare um, environment, it it has quite a negative connotation attached to it because. Often, uh, people with personality disorder are quite high volume um, service users of, of both mental health and physical health services, and it can be quite difficult for staff to um, to um, see people coming in over and over again. Perhaps they think, well, they're wasting services, or why are they, you know, presenting like this? Um, but I think the the thing I always try and say is that, that if someone is is having such a terrible time of things that they are having to present in that way. They've self-harmed or they're having to present threatening self-harm or those kind of things. That's really, you know, put yourself in their shoes. That is really not a nice state of affairs for that person to be in. Um, and no matter, you know, what the, what the behaviour, it, it's useful to take a step back. The other thing I say is that, you know, people with personality disorder, and I'll I, I explain my understanding of it in a, in, a, in a second, but they can be very difficult to spend time in mm. um, because they bring out, as we were talking about earlier, they bring out quite difficult emotions, frustration. Um, you, you know, you can get quite quite annoyed with people, um, and and sometimes we react to that, and, and yeah. we will treat people um, differently because we're annoyed by them. And the thing I always try and remind myself is that if, if it's that distressing and that frustrating to spend 10 minutes with someone, imagine what it's like to be in their head 24-7. Yeah. So, and, and, and even as a psychiatrist, I have to keep resetting my sort of compassionateness <laughs> yeah. or my compassion. And so it, it's important to, to, to remember that, that, you know, this person's life is not good. And, you know... Um, Especially if they're not being nice to you at the time as well. If well they're, they're swearing at you exactly, or being, yeah. Exactly. I mean, um, we're, we're human. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think this, th- there's this concept which I know we talk about in, in psychiatry and I think it, it, it's there, and it, maybe not using this terminology in, um, in, in other fields of medicine, but we, we talk about unconditional positive regard. Is it, and it's really difficult, but it, it, it's treating all our patients in a positive way. Even if they are swearing at us, even if they are trying to assault us, you, they're a patient. Yeah, it's not our job to punish them. It's not our job to uh, judge them. It's our job to treat them. Mm. So, um, so it's a it's a difficult thing to achieve. But unconditional positive regard is what we should be aiming for. New Year's resolution. Yes, <laughs> every year. Um, but uh, yeah, in terms of what what a, a personality disorder is. Um, the way I explain it to patients um, 
is well first of all let's start by explaining what a personality is yeah we've all got a personality and we can describe what people's personalities are you know we, we've all got friends who are highly strong we've got friends who are chilled out we've got friends who are um you know xyz and we all know what someone's personality is like absolutely um but it's when you try and describe what a personality is it, it, it can be quite difficult to, mm. to kind of it's quite a nebulous thing um the way I think about it is, it's like a membrane between you and the world. Yeah. And everything you do, and everything you say, and everything you, uh, every way that you interact with the world goes through this membrane. So your personality is pretty much set from late teens, early twenties, and that's the the kind of person you are, and uh, and therefore that that governs the way that you interact with the world. Yeah. And other people. Your reactions, your actions. Yeah. Yeah. And that personality does change under stress. Um, so we'll all know people who are quite chilled out, but then if they're put under stress, they might snap or they might get angry. Yeah. Um, and that's that's if you have a inverted commas uh, uh, normal personality. Normal personality. Although I've never met anyone with a normal personality. We've all, we've all got our quirks. Um, so that's that's what a personality is, and we all have one. And that develops throughout our childhood. Um, and as I say, sort of settles down in our late teens, early twenties. Um, now, if you've had things that happened to you, especially in your formative years in your childhood, it may well disrupt how your personality develops. Yeah. Um, and the way that I describe personality disorder is, I, I think about a, a normal distribution. We've all you know, seeing the normal distribution. Most patients are aware of that, so I actually end up drawing a normal distribution uh, for them. And I talk about the, um, the, the there are hundreds of different characteristics that make up our personality. Yeah. And they're all on that normal distribution. And for most things, most people are pretty average. Yeah. We might have a few extreme things. You know, we might, you know, be um, talkative or we might be, um, you know, might be very lazy or those kind of things. Um, you might have a few extreme things, but because we're pretty much average for most things, they sort of buffer the the extremeness. Yeah. So we get on fine most of the time. Under really extreme circumstances, our personality might cause us difficulties. But for a quote normal personality, we're pretty much average. Now, someone with a personality disorder, in my the way that I think about it, they have a cluster of really extreme personality traits and what's worse is under stress those personality traits become more pronounced yeah so the most common personality disorder that you'll see in the emergency department is emotionally unstable personality disorder um, it used to be called borderline personality yeah. disorder because there were those, those old labels stick with you yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's a really bad label it was because people thought it was the borderline between psychosis and neurosis, but it's not, um, but it's stuck. The problem is people come away thinking, oh, well, it's only a borderline personality disorder, it's not that bad, yeah. but it ruins people's lives, so it really is quite bad. Um, so when they feel but, something, they really feel feel it. Yeah, so, so if we, so we look at the, the cluster of symptoms that people have in borderline personality disorder, they um, will, Oh, oh, sorry, emotionally stable. stable. <laughs> and, and that is what it, that does what it says on the tip. It, they, they are more emotionally unstable than average. 
So they put someone with EUPD will react more intensely to to things. They'll have a very changeable mood, perhaps, um, and often people will say, "Oh, I think I've got bipolar," uh, which is a mood disorder where you have significant periods of depression, significant periods of mania. But someone with EUPD, their mood will change like that. They will uh, have several fluctuations in their mood throughout a day. Yeah. Um, and then. They're very, they're very difficult to live with. They're very difficult to be. You know, mm. if, you, if you have an emotionally stable personality disorder, it's really difficult to be that person. I'll talk about some of the other disorders that mm. we see, but you do sometimes see see those kind of uh, thoughts. Mainly, people with emotionally stable personality disorder think about killing themselves yeah. or hurting themselves. Yeah. Um, and there's a very um, it. it Often there's lots of kind of dichotomous and, and, uh, and contradictory things in, in someone with emotional stable PD. So, for example, they they may be very clingy uh, with those around them, but also push people away, which seems contradictory. Um, often that stems from a fear of abandonment. So they think that those around them are going to either betray them or leave them, or you know they find it very difficult to trust other people. And that stems often from experiences in their childhood, often abusive situations where they haven't been able to trust people. Sure. And, and so they find it very hard to trust. Um, they, therefore, they experience rocky relationships. Um, and that's not just you know, romantic relationships, it, you know, it's relationships at work, with family, those kind of things. It, they find it very hard to keep friends. Um, they can be quite impulsive mm. uh, and act without thinking and that often can lead to things like self-harm especially if they've got this chronic sort of hatred of themselves and chronic thoughts about hurting themselves mm. and then they act in an impulsive way and hurt themselves um, so so that that's uh, that, that's something that you often see and um, and the, this chronic suicidality is something that, that's very, very common. It's, it's, it's been there for, you know, since their late teens, early 20s, they've had this thought about suicide there. Um, and, that, and it's very distressing for them. And it's very distressing for people around them because they're expressing this. Yeah. Um, and it obviously causes a lot of anxiety for people around them. And it's not enough to say, well, they've never done it before, so they're not going to do it. You know, you, you need to, each time there's a, there's a, um, a distressing episode and someone presents to health, health services, we do need to think about... Not the boy who cried wolf sort of scenario. Exactly. Um, and, and there are some, you know, sometimes like, you know, a cry for help mm. is quite a, it's not, some patients will use that themselves, but it's not really a, a helpful way to talk about, about, um, about these um, kind of acts uh, with a patient. The, the other thing is often, you, if someone has harmed themselves, it's, it's important to find out what they wanted to do, what, what they thought they'd get out of it. Mm -hmm. um, because, and, and I always ask that in a really sort of, I, I don't know, you know, I, I, you tell me sort of way. Um, and often the response will be, you know, what the hell do you think I meant to do? Yeah. Um, because, they wanted to end their life, but you can't assume that. Yeah. Um, uh, often people will self harm for um, relief. So mm. they'll, 
you know, they experience a, a sensation of, uh, of, of release and relief from harming themselves. Sometimes it's about, you know, just converting uh, emotional pain into physical pain. Sometimes it's about punishing themselves. Mm. Sometimes it's about, you know, they have very low self-worth and therefore think that that's what they deserve. So, so you really need to explore why someone's hurt themselves and yeah. don't just make assumptions. And, and aside from, and because self-harm is so central to many people's lives with, with emotions, so personality disorder, it can become that, that that's the main thing that we think about. Um, but there are some other things that you need to ask about, um, about what their emotions like. Um, do they have explosive emotions? And they'll recognise that if that, if that frames true for them. Um, another thing is, that, and, and people who don't experience this will find this difficult to identify with, but for people with emotional stable personality disorder, this phrase sort of hits, hits the nail on the head is, do you feel empty? And, and often they'll feel emotionally empty that are on numb mm. side. Um, it's very difficult to explain that to someone who hasn't experienced it, but when someone has experienced it, they're like, God, it's like, it's like you know me. They, they really, it really does ring true. Um, they can, if you've got EUPD, you can find it very hard to control your emotions so, or control your impulses. So you might get very angry easily. Um, and, um, and, and that then can lead to that impulsive behavior that we spoke about earlier. Um, and, I, and you do also see people, and, and these are often worse when people are stressed out, is paranoia um, and sometimes pseudo-psychotic experiences. So voices, negative voices, usually negative voices in, uh, inside the head, uh, making disparaging comments about, about your appearance or your self-worth and those kind of things. And, and often those, the content of those voices rings true with that person's own deep down view of themselves. Um, so it's useful to know what, what the content is because that gives you a window into what they really think about themselves. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the important thing to, to remember, as I said, is, is you know, it is really distressing to have this kind of condition. Um, it's a lifelong condition, and, and it is usually born out of really distressing things in, in early life. So um, I think really it's important to be compassionate for, for, for people with these difficulties, even though that can be difficult, you know, when you're stretched and you've got other priorities yeah. and those kind of things. I think the other thing to remember is that although Emotionally stable personality disorder is the personality disorder that you'll see in the department. There are other personality disorders that you will never see. Mm. So you have sort of a schizoid personality disorder, which is someone who spends all of their time alone and won't leave the house and has a very restricted uh, range of interest. And actually, that person is never going to come to any because they, you know, that they they are kind of a hermit type person. So it's impairing their functioning and it's causing distress but it's not the kind of distress that is dramatic no. and comes to the to the um, attention of services um, we might see them in psychiatry but we very rarely see them as a presenting complaint in, in AA yeah. um, the, the one that you might well see uh, the, the, the other personality disorder that you might see in, in A&E um, quite commonly is, is um, dissocial personality disorder or antisocial personality disorder. Um, essentially, these are these are usually men, um, whereas people with emotionally stable personality disorder are usually women, um, although men do experience it. Um, 
uh, a dissocial personality disorder is usually a male thing, and it's it's characterised by someone who um, they they break social boundaries, they break taboos, they commit crime, um, and it, it's it's you're very essentially a very angry. Um, you know, abusive type person that you see in A&E quite, quite frequently. To, to put it in context, the, the people that, that have this diagnostic label of dissocial personality disorder make up 50% of the prison population. I was going to say, so, this is a, they, they are very often in the company of a police officer, yeah. a prison officer, yeah. uh, if, if they have a dissocial personality yeah. disorder. And, and I think the, the, the thing to remember about dissocial personality disorder, but also emotionally stable personality disorder, is that although the, the disordered personality, the difficulties that someone has in their personality can be an explanation for their behaviour, it's not an excuse. No. Yeah? And um, what, what we um, are very clear about, one of the messages that we give to people with personality disorder is that it's important that they take responsibility for their own actions and for their own safety. Um, and so someone with a social personality disorder, disorder who comes in and assaults a nurse or assaults a, a receptionist, they can't say, I did it because of my personality yeah. disorder. That they still have control. They, they, they are more likely to do things that are harming other people or that, you know, breaking the rules. But they, they can still choose whether to do it or not. So yes. it's not an excuse. Likewise, it's important for someone with emotionally, emotionally unstable personality disorder, it's important to empower them and say that, that they need to take responsibility for their, their, their safety. Mm. Um, especially because they will often want to absolve themselves of responsibility. They want to say, someone else look after, after me, someone else solve this. Um, it's not my fault. It's, and, and it's not about fault or blame, but you know, they will try and, they'll, they'll try and make their problems yeah. someone else's responsibility because they're so difficult to deal with themselves mm. um, and often if you're discharging someone from, especially in the ED uh, discharging someone who's come in having self-harmed you may well get threats such as you know I'm going to go and take an overdose and if I die it will be your fault yes yeah? sadly I've heard that quite a few yeah. times and, yeah. and, and, and the important thing to remember as the clinician is no it's not your fault if you have done a, a thorough assessment you've involved the right people, so if, if mental health services have been involved, if that's, if liaison services, if that's necessary. Uh, if you've documented your assessment, if it's very clear what the, the, the rationale behind discharge is, uh, then that's absolutely fine. If, you know, you can never rid a situation of risk, but as long as you've done all the right things. I, I always like to think that I've got a little coroner on my shoulder. Everything I do, I document as if a coroner is going to read it if the worst happens yes um, but but you know you will get this you know if you discharge me I will do this and you know XYZ conditional threats are are always something to be aware of that you know with emotional blackmail it, exactly exactly it, it, it's it's unusual for those conditional threats to be followed through sometimes they are but as long as you've done everything correctly mm -hmm. you, you don't need to worry too much about that um, and I think that there's a there's a four word description of personality disorder in general and mm. emotionally stable personality disorder in particular that a nursing colleague once told me and it, it is I think it really sums up 
the kind of conflict, because that, that's what it's all about really, it's about all these conflicting emotions in someone's head. Um, and this forward phrase really sums up the experience of emotionist personality disorder in quite a, a, a kind of evocative way, is um, it's help me, you bastards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's someone who desperately wants to be helped and mm-hmm. desperately wants a, a hug and wants to be cared for and wants you know wants that that care around them. But may also not have received in life. May not have received it before, yeah. but will also act in a way that sabotages that help being forthcoming. Yeah. You know, they will push people away. Yeah. So it's that it, it it's a it's a it's a silly little phrase, but actually it does sum up the. Um, the, the way that the people with personality disorder, especially EEPD, interact with the world. It's a very difficult conflict that they, they're struggling with. Well, thank you very much. I think that's a very broad sort of introduction to a few bits and bobs. Um, anywhere that you'd recommend for further reading? Because I think we've glossed over quite a lot. So where's, where's some good places to look? So the, um, the MIND website is excellent. Um, there are some really good... Um, uh, leaflets that you can download there. So that's mind.org.uk. M-I-N-D. M-I-N-D. And I particularly recommend they have a, a, a booklet called Understanding Borderline Personality Disorder. Although it's got the old-fashioned title, the content is fantastic. And it, it it's a really helpful thing for clinicians to read to get an idea of what EUPD is all about. But it's actually really helpful for patients as mm. well. You know, to, to give them... Uh, to read through and to actually understand that there's other people experiencing those kind of things. Yeah. But what I what I find is that actually uh, because there is this pejorative uh, con- uh, um, connotation to personality disorder, because in the past it was treated only as a diagnosis of exclusion, often the way that it was disclosed to patients was very poor. Yeah. Um, and or sometimes it wasn't even disclosed at all. You'll have patients who have it in their notes historically and they've not been told what the problem is. Um, and actually, being told your diagnosis, there are advantages and disadvantages to it. But if it's done really well, it's actually a, it's a, it's an empowering thing to understand what your difficulties are. Sure. Um, so I think actually disclosure of diagnosis is really important and that's not something I'd expect someone who isn't a psychiatrist to be doing mm. but actually it, it, it can be an opportunity in the emergency department to get liaison psychiatry down and, and if that is a good experience actually that sets the patient up to have a better experience of, of health services and mental health services down the sure. line rather than having a label stamped on them sure. um, so I find that giving that leaflet is really helpful the Royal College of Psychiatrists um, have some really good leaflets as well that are, are helpful to both clinicians and patients, and that's rcpsych.ac.uk. Thank you very much, James. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. That was the Take Orally General Introduction to Psychiatry podcast. Remember, you can find the blog entry and the Take Vigilly for this podcast at www.takeorally.com. You can also find Take Orally on both Facebook and Twitter. For more information about research and education opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine and major trauma, remember you can find NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.